Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Steve Kantner, and he'll be answering your most important questions on women who fish. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure to sign up to, to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Steve Kantner about women who fish. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to providing your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling, while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Steve, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Steve's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be about something that Steve and I talk about during the show. So take good notes. Um, just submit your answer along with your name and location in that text box on our homepage, and, uh, and you might win that $25 gift certificate, which you can redeem online or in their store in Boulder, Colorado. Our guest tonight is Steve Kantner. Steve is a former guide and outdoor communicator who entered the fly fishing business after stepping off his local canals banks. Steve's cameo enterprise, Land Captain Inc., takes its name from how he guided customers on foot and from the seat of his car. A South Florida fixture for over 50 years, Kantner has walked and fished practically every foot of the surf, pier, and canal bank that's accessible to anglers on foot. After starring in various TV productions, ones that showcased his unique approach to fishing, and hosting a drive-time radio show, Steve decided to become a full-time writer. He later added fly casting instructor, seminar promoter, and eventually an editor whose Byline has appeared in Saltwater Sportsman, Florida Sportsman, Fly Rod and Reel, Fly Fishing in Saltwaters, and many other publications. He's also written for South Florida Sun Sentinel and was once the assistant editor as well as editor-at-large and opinion columnist for Florida Fishing Weekly. His most recent book, 50 Women Who Fish, 
is a lavishly illustrated table-sized book from Wild River Press that was uh, published this spring of 2019. Steve, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hey, Roger, how are you? Glad to I'm be here. I'm doing great. Well, good. Glad to have good. you. Um, as always, I demand that we have fun tonight and uh, and talk fishing specifically. I'm all uh, for fun and yeah. Let's let's let her rip. Okay, good. Well, you um, have written a book, uh, "Women: Fifty Women Who Fish," uh, and and this this book, uh, you know, includes women that, that not only are fly fishers but uh, you know spin heavy tackle and so forth. But tonight we're going to highlight. Um, Mainly uh, a few out of the 50, because obviously we can't cover 50, of the uh, the women that are fly fishers. And so uh, because the show is about fly fishing, we'll focus on those. Um, but tell us a little bit no, no, you know, I, about... Right. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, um, tell us a bit about uh, what prompted you to start interviewing and, and writing about women uh, in your book. What got this whole thing going? The publisher, Tom Perrow... Uh, I've done some work for him previously. I wrote a, I wrote the history chapter in Andy Mills' groundbreaking book about fly fishing for tarpons, titled A Passion for Tarpon. And Pero, I, I did something for him. Well, he had a magazine once, and I wrote a, an article for him. And he was familiar with my work. And um, I hold his writing in, in high esteem. And occasionally we have a social conversation. And he's out in uh, near Seattle, Washington, so it's like with you, it's you know, there's a time differential. But he and I were talking, and he publishes entirely these quality books on, you know, this field sports, fishing, you know, any of these sporting things. I mean, hunting, turkey hunting, uh, Atlantic salmon, whatever. And we got talking about what I consider kind of a new wave in fishing, which is this groundswell of ladies who, if they weren't fishing before, we didn't know about it as much as we have in the last couple of years. And he asked me, he said, you live down there in Fort Lauderdale, which is the home, uh, traditional home of the International Game Fish Association. And our, he asked me, he said, you know probably some of these ladies. And I said that I did. And he asked if I thought any of them would talk to me, and I, I said, yeah, I guess if I'm nice, they would, and I do know quite a few of them. And anyway, uh, he said, why don't you write me up? Why don't we go ahead and we'll get from the very beginning of angling. Let's, why don't you go and write maybe seven profiles of ladies that you think have made a, had a big impact on sport angling? And I went to work on it, and frankly, I wasn't into it for three weeks when I discovered that what I thought were major female contributors wasn't a drop in the bucket of the number of serious lady anglers who, in some cases unsung, have contributed so much to this sport for such a long time. And it became a labor of love, and, of course, it's very fascinating material. And I wanted to try to... At one time, on one hand, I wanted to let the girls tell their story. This, these are not, no offense to Zuckerberg, but these aren't Facebook posts. This, this is something that's very permanent, and I believe that unlike a lot of the written word, I had to make sure, the reporter had to make sure that these people 
saw that their story was the way they wanted it to be told. Now, I'm, I'm not perfect, and I'm sure I made some errors, but anyway, this project expanded from seven or eight ladies to not only 50, but is kind of a, if I can say, the shoulders that these living 50 ladies uh, currently stand on, and that is, uh, in this case, I picked out 10 women deceased who had substantially contributed to fishing or its related uh, science or whatever from the very beginning of what we consider sport angling. And that's, I, I wrote a prologue with them, and then 50 of these females who are currently movers and shakers. Okay. Now, what uh, did you conduct these interviews in person, using video conferencing or by phone? How? Oh, a combination. I, I went occasionally. I'm not, you know, I've, I've put a lot of years in at this, and I used to go here, do that, and go to this tackle show or whatever. And first of all, some of these ladies I, I know and are actually, uh, because of their relationship to fishing and that of me and mine, I know them. And I know, I guess what I'm trying to say is I know who's hot and I know who's not. Other ones that I had never met, uh, a couple of these ladies I connected with, uh, we had a bonefish tarpon uh, trust uh, symposium down here, and I got to meet several whom I'd never met before, uh, lovely, spent time with at the couple-of-day conference. And a lot of these, the other ones, I had to kind of go introduce myself. And one thing that was, you know, it's, it's, and I don't know if this is the proper analogy, but it's like getting a date in college. You do a lot better if you have somebody, you know, that knows the lady you're looking to ask out. Call and say, hey, I've got this friend, and he'd like to talk to you. And they know the girl. And so, okay. But, you know, until they knew I was legitimate, and I certainly, I, I don't, my career is not that meteoric that everybody in the world knows about me, but they kind of paved the way. Is that how you, so, uh, in other words, it's what a nation of knowing them, calling them up and introducing myself, uh, in repetitive uh, written interviews followed by phone calls. Uh, it was an exhaustive process. And how long did it take you to, time, to complete all these interviews? Okay. Well, the interviews, everything was done um, late last fall, but then I had to concoct an index, and I'll be honest with you, I'd never done a really detailed, and this one was 14 pages of this, like, two-point type indexed, two columns each page. I'd never done anything like that before, and, I mean, it, it was, like, overwhelming, but I did it, and uh, in the process, I learned even more about my subject and about, you know, certain pagination techniques, but uh, 27 months from the time wow. I took the assignment, I decided what I wanted to base the book on and or how the, the format I wanted to use until it was finally uh, somebody sent it to a printer. Apero sent it to uh, a printer up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, these things started rolling off the assembly line. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Well, good. Uh, you talked. Uh, you already mentioned the prologue, so let's start talking about some of these ladies. Um, and like you said, you profiled, I think, ten in the prologue of women that are no longer with us, but uh, really played significant roles in in fishing. Uh, 
Um, maybe yeah, not, the first maybe one fishing. is... But, yeah, why don't you yeah. talk about a few of these? Yeah, the first one, and I will tell you at the get-go that there has been some argument about this, but I have a what I'm going to say is a fairly extensive knowledge of early English history. With a lady named Dame, that's a dead, you know, like Lady Juliana Berners, who was an, the abbess at a, um, a, a place in, I think, what here, I can, I can actually find this in front of me, um, who, uh, where was it here? She, uh, she was the, at the Priory of St. Mary at Sopwell in Herefordshire. And there's been some question about whether this woman actually existed. But what she did, let me tell you that first. She allegedly wrote what was what's titled the Book of St. Albans or the Book of St. Albans. Only three copies of the ancient work have ever been found. And one contained a kind of a, well, added it. The books were about field sports, about hunting, riding, that kind of thing. And one of them contained what is titled a treatise, and I imagine the ancient English spelling, uh, on fishing with an angle. And in it, she describes a, quote, jury of 12 flies that shall indict any trout that lives in the stream. She lived with a group of nuns out in the middle of nowhere, and these ladies, they got their subsistence primarily, you know, local farmers and stuff would bring them meat once in a while, or they'd trap birds. And Excuse me, this is back before even gunpowder was in wide use. I think this was before the Battle of Cressy in England. They didn't have this stuff. But, you know, they'd trap birds or shoot them or, uh, with a slingshot or whatever. But Dame Juliana discovered that if you took, and I'm going to use the analogy of a typically old bent pin, and I can tell you a little more that makes me believe that this story is true, and wrap the feathers of a bird or the dub, the fur of an animal, with on thread and wrap it around a hook, it resembled one of these jury of 12 flies that, basically caddis and mayflies that lived in the River Dove. And I would say a lot of people debunk this because there's not a lot of record of Dame Juliana. Who was she, I say in here, was she? She was apparently a woman who who lived at court. Um, she quit the English court at an early age and uh, took up uh, a, what would you call it, a, a monastic, the life of a nun, and the idea about fly fishing back, and this was the date, was the book was published in 1496. And the idea of fly fishing back then, which is, you know, hundreds of years before the advent of uh, nylon lines with, you know, yeah. the, the, what do you call it, PVC coating. But what she found is you can take the hair from a good, healthy horse's tail. It's like a piece of monofilament, like 7X monofilament. You know, it actually tested about three pounds. And she found that you could knot these together, and eventually, now you remember, these, these nuns were very self-sufficient. They had looms, and they could weave a bunch of these together and make what would be the equivalent of a modern tapered fly line. And they didn't have, I mean, you know, we're not talking about sage rods here, you know, or fancy reels, but 
they would take a, let's say, a 16-foot piece of willow or what do they call it, sprig of willow or whatever, and they could, the line had weight. It's, it's the basic premise of fly fishing, and they could put a roll into it and send that fly out across the stream. And since most, well, all these flies actually were wet flies, and, you know, you're just swimming them across. It's exactly what Tenkara is. Uh, the story made perfect sense. And also the fact that this, the bulk of St. Albans was initially, and the fact that this woman was a church woman, it was published at least with the permission, if not under the auspices of the Holy Roman Church, which I think that had any of this been a falsehood or improperly or plagiarized or whatever, uh, back in those days, that kind of thing would have severe consequences. And you say, what about hooks? Uh, very interesting, not far from Sopwell or, or Hertfordshire or whatever, is Limerick, where they, uh, to this day, uh, penal limericks are made or whatever. And this is also where, back in the day, uh, a craft, a guild of people called needle makers practice this rather dangerous art. They have these like little igloos they build. They'd be inside there with a bellows and this really hot stuff and they'd get metals that were smelted, make needles. But how easy is it to take a hot needle and bend it around in a circle? And, you know, back then these hooks didn't have to have these perfect eyes on them. All you had to do is be flattened on one end and have a smell around it. When I first started fly fishing, the guys used to carry, they used to have these wet fly wallets, and they used to have smells in there, uh, yeah. you know, with the sheepskin ones and stuff. So anyway, yeah. I believe okay. that the fact that, first of all, this book was, its printing was, from everything I can determine, and I've researched this intensively, sanctioned by the church, and secondly, that all the science in there and the geography makes perfect sense. I think this is legitimate. You can look yeah. back throughout the annals of whatever you look. There's something in ancient, I think Herodotus, uh, the historian, talks about the river Alien in Asia Minor where uh, fish are rising to a bug. Uh, the river Estrus, that's what it is. And he talks about people making some sort of an imitation to get it out there or whatever. Yeah. But this is not that well documented, whereas Berner, uh, who writes in that, that you know, old English, you know, Von that April, it was sure to slip that. When I went to high school, incidentally, they made us learn the original, you know, can yeah, yeah. opening Canterbury. So, so basically, they, so, yeah, so basically, um, Juliana Bern, Berners was considered maybe the first fly fisher, uh, woman fly fisher, I think, I basically, think that's been is. documented. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, pretty incredible going back that time. And, and it all makes logical sense of, you know, people make do with stuff and uh, watch watch nature and watch what happens in nature and then use tools to But to no different than a, an observant fly fisherman today. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, one thing that was yeah. different is a woman. <laughs> yeah. Go figure, yeah. you know, 1486. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's terrific. Okay, there was, there was plenty more back then, but I think uh, with the time allotted us tonight, let's talk about our modern-day fly fishers. And um, uh, the first one up that um, that I'd like to ask you about is Dorothy or Dottie Ballantyne. So, um, yeah, Dottie Ballantyne. 
Yeah, talk about Dottie and tell us, uh, you know, how did she get started? Did she have a mentor? Things like that. Yeah, she's a sweetheart. I know her. In fact, she invited me to go fishing with her down in Key West, and I couldn't make it. I'll tell you, Dottie Ballantyne was a Sarah Lawrence graduate and who went to the University of Wisconsin where my wife attended grad school, and she got a major in financial services or whatever. I mean, she went into the financial service business in Madison, and she and her sister owned a cabin out in Jackson, Wyoming, and like a lot of these ladies, the two of them were out there, or she was out there, she had the cabin for, you know, I guess they treated it like a timeshare, and she watched a fly casting demonstration, and she decided then and there that the entire family would learn how to fly cast, and they did, and sometime afterwards, um, a divorced lady uh, I believe, I don't know all the details, but she uh, she met a guy named Fitz Coker. He's a lovely guy. He lives in Key West and in Montana as well. And he uh, invited her fishing down in Key West. Now, she, by this time, now she was a pretty fair trout fisherman. And um, she details in the book the first times he took her fishing a place called Long Flat at Sugarloaf where I fished there myself and it's the fishing is tough and she you know, in the tarpon and she's all bundled up, you know, against the sun and here comes, you know, thirty or forty of these hundred pound tarpon coming at her in about three and a half feet of water in a white sand bottom and her legs are shaking and she says to me she said I and he's saying, Come on, come on, come on, you know, do this, you know, ten o'clock. He's trying to teach her this stuff and in the beginning, I mean, her knees were knocking, and she was afraid to, uh, you know, afraid to try it. But after a while, she did, and she got these things. She'd hook them and, uh, and land them, and um, in the case of tarpon, often release them. And at one time, of course, when it was required, I mean, there are some fish that are eaten afterwards or whatever, but uh, uh, also she has to date – I haven't checked this in the last week, but she has 159 fly rod world records. Absolutely unheard of. There's one other lady who's not far behind her, a lady named Meredith McCord. But Dottie Ballantyne is, uh, she is a, uh, one of Key West's finest citizens. Her nephew, a guy named Nathaniel Clark Linville, uh, owns a fly shop down there. And she gets my award as probably, well, I mean, if numbers count, she certainly has caught more than just about anybody. And uh, in the chapter, the likes of Captain Ted Lund, who was the editor of Fly Fishing and Saltwaters, and also, pardon me, a Key West guide, credits her with having this absolutely incredible touch where she could put all the pressure that anybody could with these light tippets. And she, like a lot of these ladies, took instruction from experts and uh, as a result developed into a uh, certainly an unstoppable lady fisherman who, in her case, won the IGFA Lifetime Achievement Award. I was there when she did. Wow, wow. So she's uh, primarily a recreational fly fisher, right? Uh, doesn't do anything professionally. Oh, boy, no, no. Uh, she, uh, the financial angle is not cheap. She doesn't yeah. have to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. catching records is what she does. Catching records is what she's known for. And, um, um, yeah, very interesting, her, her very 
you know, her financial background of not being really involved in the outdoors until a little later in life uh, is very interesting and, and getting hooked but on so it. So many of these ladies, they see the fly line gone through the air and everything, and there's some women and men who try to add this magic to it to feel as though they have this exceptional gift to gab. But so many women, with their the fact that they're not necessarily relying on muscle, um, this is really impressive to my wife. Who I, there's nothing impressive about me at all. And I probably didn't have any money when I met her. And I took her fly fishing. And she saw that, and all of a sudden, in one instant, the sophisticated woman was just totally transfixed. And she thought, this yeah. man, you know, he's, you know, I don't have to tell you how that works, but, I mean, we've been together for 40 years. Yeah. And yeah. there is yeah. a beauty, yeah, that appeals to ladies as well as men. Right. Yeah. Okay, um, Steve, we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk with our next uh, highlighted lady, which is going to be Whitney Gould. So um, uh, hang with me, and I'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today. Take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Steve Kantner about women who fish. And if you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, so Steve, next up is, um, is Whitney Gould. So um, Whitney is uh, a younger lady than um, than Dottie, but very much uh, in the news, so to speak, in the fly fishing world, right? Yeah, she just won her what was it seventh Jimmy Green Spayorama contest, and for anybody who's really into fly fishing, you know the spay fishing with the big two-handed rods is all the rage. And Whitney uh, is a master at it. And, you know, when you try, these different ladies have different talents or whatever, but through sheer determination and lots of good tutelage from a lot of these names aren't as familiar to me as they might be to you, but some of these uh, spay casting greats, uh, she has perfected, she has gotten to where she can consistently, I think she throws a fly line like 150 feet. And I have a spay rod. We don't have the fast-moving water here, but I have used it. Uh, occasionally we get a situation, but, uh, I mean, she has, I mean, that's seven of those titles. I don't think it gets any better than that. And she, in her words, she uh, is also expert with a single-handed rod. I mean, I ask her questions. I mean, she's tough. I mean, I stuff like, well, 
where would you like to go fishing? You know, he's like, you think I'm going to tell you? You know, I mean, she's very feisty. But uh, uh, she came from, I, and I remember this, she was catching bass and perch and stuff as a kid, and I believe it was in Minneapolis in Minnesota. And she wanted to get out of there. She had seen some better fishing, but it was always, you know, by way of hopping a train or an airplane or whatever. And she, so to speak, got the bug, and she had a, I believe it was a Volkswagen Rabbit or whatever, and she decided to go out and take a look at the American West, and she drove into, I'm going to say it was Oregon, and uh, she'd never seen anything like this. And she fished that entire area, northern California, Washington, and Oregon. In fact, she has a rather unique gig. She is sort of like, she rides a circuit. She's like when it, like a circuit court judge, and she'll guide for a certain time one place, and then she moves, and she follows the fish, and, of course, she's got a clientele that follow her. I know I would speak to her in the car, and I would lose her while she's going up by Prey, Montana, you know, and I, I've driven around a lot out there, and, you know, she'd get behind the mountains. But, and she guides at a certain time in, in the late winter, I guess, or when the half-pounders go up the rivers in northern California, she guides there, and when she's not, and then when it gets real cold, she and a couple of these ladies, and they've all now kind of become girlfriends, or a lot of them have. Uh, I think she goes down by Christmas Island and some of these other places, and they fish for saltwater fish with a, you know, like a one-handed rod. I did see something that was hysterical on Facebook one time. I forget, it was the one lady, uh, I believe it was uh, Kate Taylor, and Whitney were on some island somewhere, I don't know, Christmas Island or whatever, and there was a coconut tree down there. They're not like they are here in Fort Lauderdale. You say this thing is up there like about 60 feet, and I think Kate said, man, I'd like a coconut. Whitney says, wait here. And she and you see the picture of this. I don't know if she did it the way these Jamaicans do it, would tie a belt around her ankles. She shimmied up this tree. And, I mean, I used to climb a lot of trees, but, I mean, this is a single stalk. She was knocking down coconuts and throwing them and stuff like that. But she is uh, definitely, she's an athletic talent, and she's received uh, uh, certainly a lot of the applications of her, of her fellow competitors. And uh, I guess if there's one thing that she's really known for is she is the, the spay casting. And she gives... Clinics. There's a place called the Red Shed, and I forget where that is, what state that's in, but I think she does kids' clinics and stuff like that. And almost all these ladies do something for the environment in one way or another. They contribute yeah. their time, their finances. They certainly uh, they give seminars and stuff for lots of these, many of these outfits, environmental organizations or organizations. Right that benefit conservation and the environment. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whitney, she's a doozy. Yeah, it looks like she, uh, yeah her guiding, uh, it looks like she primarily specializes in, like, um, trout, steelhead, salmon, uh, basically. Yeah, she goes up, I forgot Northwest. to mention. Yeah. Uh, she goes up, she goes all the way up to Alaska occasionally, and, and uh, we have some pictures, or if we don't, I've certainly seen some pictures of her standing with some big ones. In fact, now, I think, is the time for the early kings up at, uh, like, uh, 
Yeah. I forget exactly. Rainbow yeah, yeah. King Lodge. And yeah, she might be up there now for all I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good. Uh, nice to understand more about Whitney Gould. And uh, definitely, if you're looking for a guide up in the Montana Northwest, check out Whitney. Um, next up is not particularly a avid uh, fish fisher or a fly fisher. Uh, it's Gail Morchower that I've got listed here, but uh, she was she's been quite the contributor uh, in the fishing world. Um, give us a, a brief introduction to uh, to Gail. In the words of former IGFA biologist Glenda Kelly, Gail well, she took Gail fishing once down where she lives. She has a place in the Keys, and Gail caught a couple of sea trout and pronounced it a perfectly enjoyable time. But in the words of Glenda. Gail is probably the most knowledgeable person about the world's fisheries alive on this earth. That's a pretty good endorsement. I'll tell you something that's really kind of strange. I just got an email this morning from Gail Morkshower, and somehow I had a change in my email address, and I tried to notify everybody about it, but Gail had not, she hadn't gotten it, and uh, as a result, I ended up getting this lovely thank you note, and, you know, for including her and whatever. And, you know, she was kind enough to say that she liked the book and, you know, fluffed my feathers a little bit. But funny you mentioned that just came this morning. Yeah, yeah. She is and well. She was a librarian, and she retired. And the IGFA, there have been changes. Uh, you know the. Morris, the guy who was uh, chairman or whatever, they moved a lot of the stuff out to, uh, he has this big park that uh, wildlife or wild park that they've done in conjunction with, uh, I guess it's the state of Missouri or Arkansas, forgive me for not knowing, up in the Ozark. And that's where actually they have the IGFA has its board of directors meetings and so on and so forth. But uh, the one thing that is still here in Fort Lauderdale, well, two things. We have our executive offices and also the library. And Gail was entrusted with the care of the E.K. Harry, Elwood K. Harry, former president, a library started. And Harry, you didn't know anything about the Dewey Decimal System. He's a lovely guy. I used to work in a tackle store as a college kid. He used to come in there. But people had given him a book, and the first book was number one. The second book was number two. It didn't matter what it was about. I mean, he had gardening books might be, you know, 004. And Gail was the only person on earth that could actually straighten this stuff out. And Gail was a former librarian at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's science uh, department. And she came down here. She worked for a year or two at Florida Atlantic University in the library. And she saw this ad in the paper, this one ad, and it kind of piqued her curiosity because she'd heard about the IGFA and she knew its motives were genuine and conservation oriented, and she came and applied for a job, and I guess Harry took one look at her. She said, I can handle this. You know, she was hired. You know, it's funny. She had retired several years ago, and I'll be honest, the library has been um, closed except under special circumstances. And Gail, uh, I think, would now allow me to say that that killed her. And she tried to get everything. They, the IGFA 
hired her to come back one or two days a week and work part-time, you know, trying to get everything in order. And then finally, uh, they couldn't do that with her anymore, and she is fully retired, unless she's doing something I don't know about. But uh, yeah. um, she is truly, she and Glenda uh, and a couple of these ladies from back in the days of the Doyens are really the heart and soul of the International Game Fish Association. Yeah, and, that, you know, it's somebody behind the scenes that nobody really knows or hears about but had a, a great part in, you know, documenting and taking oh, yeah, care of absolutely. the history and of she they have a they have a, a hall of fame that has, I think about 110 members. I don't quote me. I don't have this in front of me. But of the 110 or whatever who are in there, I think only about 10 or 11 of them are women. Mm-hmm. And let the listeners make their own mind up about that one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, another quick break coming up here, uh, Steve, and then we'll come back and talk about Lori Ann Murphy. And um, okay. we're talking about women that uh, definitely uh, kind of broke through the ceiling uh, in certain ways in the industry. She's one of them, I think. So uh, give me 30 seconds. We'll be right back, and we'll talk uh, about Laurie Ann Murphy. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Steve Kentner about women who fish. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay. Um, Steve, Lorianne Murphy. Um, Lorianne's been... Uh, you know, in the industry for quite a while now. But she made some real inroads uh, in the industry. And uh, you want to highlight those for us? Yeah, it's, it's funny you mention. I, uh, when I, I used to do a lot of trout fishing, I would drive my car from Fort Lauderdale go out to Montana and beat around before everybody was doing it. It was kind of cool. And I used to get the Orvis catalog like everybody does. And I started reading uh, the ads, and then I'd see – in this realwomenfishingadventures.com. And here I see this all-female guide service out of uh, Jackson, Wyoming, and I see this tall, lanky, string of spit, this Laurie Ann Murphy, and I was at the IGFA at a cocktail party one night, and I see her standing there. I had a couple of pops in me, and I go walking over, and I remember the name of her boat is Long Tall Sally, her original drift boat. I don't know if it still is or not. Uh, but I walked over to her, and I probably swear in my words when I said, are you? And she said, you're that land captain guy. And I said, I am. And we got talking, and I was kind of, you know, I was sort of uncomfortable because we really didn't know each other that well. I think it was a, one of these have a drink and banquets kind of things. But I became aware 
of her role, and of course she won various awards for more of this. But I have a lot of a lot of respect for her because what she did, and I'm sure it was a heck of a lot more difficult for a lady, was essentially what I did. She took a fishery um, in a place where she took a drift boat and turned it into a lifetime business. She had originally been a nurse. And she opened a clinic, I think, at one time somewhere, you know, along the Idaho-Montana border or whatever. But And she was into fly fishing. But she had – oh, I know that that all got started, incidentally. She – I forget, somebody that she was going out with or something uh, uh, had introduced her to fly fishing. And she started guiding and – Lee Perkins, a guy who was a big mahoff at Orvis, they had some kind of guides gathering or whatever, one of these big organizational gatherings, and, and she was one of the kind of neophyte fly fishers. And a guy that that knew her, who I went to, well, I didn't go to University of Miami with him, but also graduated from there, a real nice guy named Rick Ruoff. I think, I don't know what their relationship is or was or whatever, but... Uh, Anyway, he kind of took her under his wing a little bit, and she just continued to blossom. And my God, she's got—I mean, her her dance card is really full. But I really, for a female in the Rocky Mountains, where you know it's you know some of those places are a little rugged, with a drift boat, uh, that was a hell of a lot more difficult and more challenging than me walking around these canal banks here in Fort Lauderdale. I always had a lot of respect for her. And I see that uh, as she does work in the Caribbean, she, you know, goes other places. I saw something recently. She was going to be back up to Bienes, was where I used to drive out to. So uh, she has done stuff in the movies. Uh, yeah, I noticed taken, some of uh, the... Uh... Yeah, people she's fished with, Meryl Street, Kevin Bacon, uh, worked yeah. with them. Um, yeah, uh, and I mean, you know, she's got the, the, that kind of panache and that kind of appeal. And, you know, God bless her. I mean, she's busy with it. And I think she is certainly, she ranks among the first females to really take this, you know, companion, uh, going fishing with her husband kind of thing and turning it into a real business. Yeah, and I, as I understand it, real women, her business was all female guides, right? Um, so it was uh, absolutely yeah. was. Yeah, which is uh, a real I don't know if the picture. I should look. I have a great shot of her uh, with uh, Joan Wolf, who's America's first lady of fly fishing, and Diana Rudolph, who is actually a personal friend of mine who I've fished with uh, on several occasions. Uh, you know, and they're giving each other a hug. And, man, that's, you know, when it comes to just down and dirty, let's go catch some fish on a fly rod, I can't think of three more uh, menacing characters than that bunch. Yeah, And yeah, she's still, yeah. Laurie incidentally, is still buds with the girls who helped her start Real Women Out. Yeah, yeah. That much yeah, I do know. Yeah. I mean, I've had some re- fairly recent personal communications with her. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I'm looking at uh, some of her mentors there, uh, Joan Wolf, Lefty Cray, Mel Krieger, Steve Rajeff, 
Tim Ray, Jeff, Jerry Seen, you know, all all well known. So she hangs with the the big ones in the industry. Uh, I think those, it does. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, let's um, let's take another one out of your book. I picked this one, uh, Mia Flora Shepherd. So let's talk about Mia and uh, give us some background about how she got going and, and who she is. Now she's a doozy. She had uh, uh, she had kind of a tough childhood without getting into it. It's in her chapter, and she has freely been kind enough to share some of this. She is truly an inspiration. Uh, she has not only, uh, let me say, outdoor sports rescued her life, and she's married to this guy, has been for years. They have a, a 10-year-old daughter or whatever. And Mia's number one claim to fame, well, that's hard to say, but the one thing that she's really adamant about really vociferous about is getting young people involved in the outdoors at an early age, not just for let's go catch a bunch of fish, but, you know, the salubrious benefits of, you know, the outdoors and sportsmanship and stuff like that. She started snowboarding. She does that. I've seen videos of her going through these riffles under the Deschutes River on a paddleboard. I mean, I, I, mean I, yeah, I had to take a Valium just to <laughs> get my heart to slow down. It was really scary. But that the one thing is getting kids involved. The other thing is she has taken a an extreme posture in favor of the defense of the environment. I mean, everything from, you know, climate change, uh, which is really danger of affecting you folks, you know, who rely on cold water fisheries, uh, to... I know she was on that Theodore Roosevelt. She was a member of the, what is it, whatever group, and, uh, you know, that Southwest Oregon, this and that. And now she's doing some stuff for the state of Oregon, the Department of uh, their Interior out there. But she is, uh, she guides, she guides several-day float trips. This is a female now, you know, moderately young female. Uh, and she'll take a crew down the Deschutes River uh, for days, her husband guides for uh, hunting also deer and elk. I think she guides chuckers and stuff. She guides for smallmouth. He fishes the John Day River, which I, I know where it is. I mean, I was in southern uh, Washington at one time, which is uh, not that far from there. But I guess that's the longest undammed uh, um, river in the upper Columbia. Incidentally, I, I, I you hear this stuff and uh, you see these things on Facebook, and I don't know how much of it is accurate or whatever, but there's talk of removing dams in the upper Columbia. And, you know, they choked that off so bad last year that they had to stop the salmon and steelhead fishing entirely. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it got so bad. Yeah, yeah, they pulled well, the plug on it. Yeah, so she's primarily up in guides in the northwest Oregon, um, steelhead, trout, uh, smallmouth, I yeah. read here. and. Uh, yeah, she came, uh, incidentally, we were talking about Whitney Gould. Uh, Mia came in second in the Jimmy Green this year. She went down there. She got the Wanderlust. She said, I'm going to drive down there to uh, San Francisco. And she competed, and she won second place, female. This was in a casting? 
competition? Yeah, in the in the Jimmy Green. That's the big spay casting contest. The it was Jimmy one. Green, a guy who was one of the founders, as I recall, of of Fenwick, uh, who was a great caster and an instructor and everything else. This is back in the days of of real lightweight glass rods and. I mean, Green was arena real engineer. He could design these things, and I used to fish with those early Fenwicks. And I mean, man, they're like a graphite rod today. They're really something. Yeah, and, yeah. and this guy was well loved by everybody, and he popularized. He was one of the main people who popularized casting as an athletic, you know, sport competition. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. as a result, at the Golden Gate casting club there in San Francisco every year uh, his memory is honored with this spay casting they call it it's Jimmy Spayorama or, yeah that's it there's other places that do things called spay claves and uh, these spay fishermen are a breed unto themselves I mean they uh, uh, they're like people who like Airedales or something like that they only speak one language yeah, yeah. And, One thing I, I thought was and, interesting is you spent a lot of time writing about um, Mia going to Thailand and her her, her project over there. Um, oh, what a story! Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The real strength of that, I don't know if this is um, suitable, but um, she helped, and, and she's not one of these. She's not a religious fanatic, and she went there uh, in an effort to build this assist in the building of this aquaponics farm. And the whole idea, and she speaks to this with authority, and that's the real heartthrob in here, is to protect these local kids from exploitation. Uh, I know plenty of people. I was in the service. I know plenty of people who went to Bangkok and leave and, you know, served and have traveled businesses and, you know, were in Bangkok and whatever. And, uh, child trafficking and exploitation is, I mean, the average American couldn't wrap their head around it. And one of the things that the, the completion of this aquaponics facility did was it provided a safe walled-in dormitory for these local kids to hang out in and to actually work in this. And I guess they had classroom facilities. They got an education, and they got old enough to resist you know, there's people, hey, you come come Bangkok, I make you a millionaire, this kind of thing. And, you know, these kids that hadn't had but a bowl of rice in the last 10 days, you know, it's, I don't mean to moralize, but it's, some of these temptations were pretty hard. And I think that particularly the fact that Mia grew up, uh, was aware of that culture, I think that yeah. that really sets apart. Yeah, and the aquaponics was, was pretty interesting to me of uh, combining uh, growing uh, vegetables and so forth, uh, and the idea of uh, fish in the same area, um, and, and the two working symbiotically. Uh, so she combined fish with that as well, <laughs> which I thought was Yeah, no, no. Let me say I come from a place where aquaponics is practiced and uh, aquaculture is practiced. I mean, we grow tilapias and stuff, and I'm not a big fan of farm fish, uh, whether they do it in these big deep-sea drift nets or whatever. It's... Uh, there's a lot wrong with it, and the fact no. that but but here they take the fish offal, the fish feces, and it's essentially you know sprayed on the ground where you know the that produces these vegetables, 
and then these vegetables are composted, you know, the trash and stuff like that. And also, as the water gets run through these little these areas or whatever, it comes out pure. And that's what that's one of the great premises of what a lot of us would like to see happen to our Everglades down here. We'd like to see the normalization and return of the sheet flow because there's this filthy sewage-laden water, uh, which is what we're getting, comes out of the south end of the lake and big sugar and whatever. As it pumps through miles and miles of, of sunken wetlands, um, it comes out pure. I'm, I'm not going to swear you could drink it by the time it gets to Fort Lauderdale, but I know it charges, it fuels the aquifers of, of 14 cities. So uh, I think the mutualistic relationship that she talked about, particularly for somebody, you know, has environmental interest today is really a big deal. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, let's um, let's move on to another one of the ladies, um, Joan McDonald Vernon. And um, this is uh, a lady of the salt for sure. So let's well, she start well, uh, she, uh, you notice in the last, they ask what fish she likes and uh, what three species, and in the end, um, one of them is silver salmon in Alaska. But she, well, let me just preface what I'm going to say by she's my age, and she's competing against some of these young women who, in order to do what Joan Vernon has done, you can't do that at age 40 or at age 50. There just isn't enough time, okay? I mean, she is almost single-handedly responsible for the insistence on circle hooks in any billfish tournament. This includes with bait uh, on U.S. vessels. Uh, she, is, uh, she hosts that presidential series of tournaments down there in Costa Rica. She's got the – well, she runs it out of there, but – all those Central American companies, or countries rather, I hear she's got all those El Presidentes and stuff, you know, these guys with the big tall hat and all the ribbons from leading executions. She has them all on speed dial. She call them up, they'll take her call anytime. And she effectively convinced these guys, uh, these generalissimos, uh, after seeing all these sailfish rotting on racks, that a billfish was worth more to those countries alive than it was dead. And she was it, it really more than anyone uh, responsible for the fabulous sailfish fly rod fishery in Central America. And I just communicated with her today. Uh, you know, I've talked to her. I've spoken to her on the phone in Costa Rica. I don't know how many times. She... Uh, She's really a doozy. I mean, she keeps herself in tip-top physical shape. Uh, I mean, you get injured. I mean, she landed. She quit counting at 1,000 or 5,000 billfish. Releases them all. And they have these wow. tournaments. Yeah, and, I mean, you you get to keep the stuff like, uh, you know, groupers or snappers. She, she and I were back and forth the other day. She caught a world record Almaco jack. It's like an amberjack or whatever on, like, 10-pound test or whatever. Like, she's... I don't care about these records. It was Holy Week. She brought the fish back to the village and, you know, all these villagers in a place that doesn't have all the amenities that, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Florida has. These people ate on it for a week. They didn't care about the record, of course, you know, rather than weighing it in or whatever. 
This gave yeah, it to yeah. her. She's, she's a hard soul. And she likes what, cats, and I got a, a couple of cats, so uh, we're on the same what wavelength. What is the importance of the circle hook with the billfish? Uh, it's this. This is very, very important. The idea with a circle hook—they're not used as much with flies because of how the strike occurs, but particularly with a bait, where a fish and a billfish specifically goes to gobble a bait. When the line comes tight, you don't strike. The, you put the reel in gear. The line comes tight on its own, and it slides the bait and the hook over into the corner of the fish's mouth rather than throat hooking him, the gills, the roof of the mouth, or somewhere where it does lethal damage. And as a result, 90%, 99% of all billfish hooked on circle hooks get hooked in the corner of the mouth, which would be like you or I going in for uh, braces as a kid and getting a, you know, put a separator between one set of teeth. I mean, that's fish is goblin flying fish the next morning. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, something else I saw about circle hooks just recently. That's uh, They're used, some people try them with, with flies, but I use kind of a modified circle hook when I fish for snook in the surf, but they're at their best when there's no definitive strike, when the line comes selectively tight. And it's mandatory now in these billfish tournaments and these other tournaments. And it's also, uh, it really helps save any fish you would fish for. It always goes right behind the jaw latch where it can be easily removed. And incident, one last thing on this. Uh, I just wrote something for Florida Sportsman. It was, it's in this month's issue, uh, well, June issue. Uh, the state of Florida has just mandated rule changes for those of us who fish for sharks. Um, off Florida's beaches, and one of the rules is is now in force as of July, or, well, I think as of June 1 or July 1 or whatever, is the mandatory use of circle hooks wherever you might be fishing for sharks. And the idea is the shark gets hooked in the corner of the mouth, and you know, and you have to leave the shark in the water, and you have to have like a bolt cutters or something where you clip it off and you don't leave him with a bunch of hardware hanging out of him. So yeah, yeah. it's the law now for everyday fishermen. Yeah, interesting. I also Down noticed here. here yeah, I also noticed you had written uh, about her getting her captain's license uh, in the late 1980s, and that she was running charters out of Miami by 1987. So she seems oh, like she a uh, change maker as well in the in the you know. Oh uh, yeah, well, she came. She's from uh, Michigan. And I, she's the scion of a, I think a, a wealthy dairy family, and she she wanted to go to school at the University of Miami, but I guess Dad wanted her to stay closer to home, so she graduated from U Michigan, and the family used to come down here, literally. I, I didn't realize you could do this. Now I do in the Mississippi, where they would, they had a boat or they rent a boat and they'd go down through the locks and everything from wherever it was in Michigan, and and you go out down here at New Orleans, and they would go to Marathon in the Keys. And she's a 12-, 13-year-old girl, and she's fishing, walking around the flats. And I, this is in my time. when You could, you wouldn't see another person down there. She's walking around with a bucket of live shrimp tied around her waist with a spinning rod, throwing, you know, the shrimp to, to bonefish and catching them. And then they'd go over to the Bahamas. And I think the very first fish she ever caught I think was either in Michigan or 
they had relatives uh, out there in Arizona, and she used to fish for, you know, small bass and stuff in a, some little tiny tailwater or some reservoir. But by the time she was 16, I mean, she was hooked. And she came, I forget if she was married the first time. I knew her one husband, Garisto. Uh, he was a guide in, Key, in, in Biscayne Bay. And she had, first of all, she became a flats guide. And then she became, she got the bigger license, and she was an, became an offshore guide. So she had a little boat, and she had a big boat. And then after that, she started competing and stuff. She's won every possible award ever in the history of the world. And, I mean, she is one of these ladies who is an actual, well, actually quite a few of them here are, a member up until recently, uh, I think even today, she is the last female inducted into the IGFA Hall of Fame. And if you look at her list, what I was able to shove in, you know, 3,000 words in her chapter doesn't nearly draw do justice to her manifold yeah. uh, accomplishments. And yeah. she's a nice person on top of it. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, time for another break, and when we come back, we'll talk uh, about Alyssa Vinoski. And uh, okay. I see her picture here standing on top of a paddleboard fishing. Uh, like you yep. said earlier, uh, that, that's that's uh, that's not easy for me to do, that's for sure. But anyway, give us a, a 30 seconds here, and we'll be right back, uh, Steve, and we'll continue on. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with uh, restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all of the fish and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can enjoy, uh, continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join the Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Steve Kantner about women who fish. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage and fill out the form and ask us a question. Uh, okay, Steve, Alyssa Vinoski. Um, looks like from the pictures, a pretty young lady, and uh, tell us. How she's shaking things up here in the industry. You see the phenom. Um, I've had the pleasure of speaking with her on several occasions, and uh, uh, one of her friends actually helped video me for something, a three-day YouTube deal I did on the beach about surf fishing. But anyway, Alyssa is kind of remarkable at the other end of the spectrum from Joan Vernon. Alyssa, and I dare... I can say this, has not reached the age of 30, yet she is the regional manager for an outfit called Spot, which is a radio location device. You carry it with you. You go offshore, you go out, walk out in the desert, and people can find you. 
she is a, a full-time shallow water captain who not only has what we call a six-pack, you know, six people for hire 50 miles offshore, but she has that 500-ton license. She worked at one time as an animal trainer, and I hesitate to say much of this, and I didn't find out too much about this until the end, but one of the things that she did was she trained mammals, whales and porpoises, to guard I'm going to say top secret submarine bases. It's and I never, I don't. Some of the stuff I, I don't really want to know too much about because I worked in a security unit in the service many years ago, and I didn't want to pry with her. But uh, uh, she's also she's she's very voluble. You'd love talking to her on your radio program. Uh, I did one time. She was kind enough. Uh, one of the first radio interviews I did. Uh, in response to the to the book publication, and she's really easy going. She's really a sweetheart, and you know, between guiding and um, I mean, she's just a good all around ambassador for the sport and whatever. And of course, a lot what of these a, girls are sponsored the pro. Yeah, what does she guide for? What kind of fishing does she do? Okay, shallow water fishing where she is is primarily snook trout and redfish. Uh, okay. She's in that Tampa Bay area now. In all deference to her, um, and she has certainly fished a lot, a lot of other places, particularly in the continental United States. Uh, the state of Florida recently imposed a moratorium on harvesting any snook, sea trout, or redfish from all the way up by uh, Clearwater all the way down to Naples because we've had such trouble with these pernicious algal blooms in the water, the red tide, and the other, uh, uh, the name escapes me. But anyway, uh, you know, blue-green algae. And, you know, it, catch and release is okay. But if you want to go out and take some redfish fillets home, that's not the place to do it. But uh, I guess on a calm day, you know, you run offshore and stuff, you know, you get out of that, and I, I mean, there's there's coordinates. The state publishes; they have a website for this. But she, uh, I don't know if she's guided other places, but she has, uh, she guides there, and she has done quite a bit of media work. She has several world records, including uh, one of them is a real good one. It's a 10 pound plus bass on some little tiny you know, spiderweb tippet on a fly rod. And I know I've talked to her about some of the places she's fished and where I've fished professionally, you know, guiding here in South Florida out in the Everglades and stuff. And I never came up with anything she didn't know about. But she was introduced to me uh, electronically by uh, Adrian Gray, who's the uh, in charge of production and IT guy at the International Game Fish Association, and uh, uh, he made the introduction. Ironically, the first time I ever spoke with her, uh, she picked up the phone. She was representing Spot at uh, up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I remember I said my wife comes from up there at what they call the EAA or the Experimental Aircraft Owners Association, and it's they they have all these fancy stealth bombers and stuff flying in. There's like 10,000 people in the infield. I mean, it's really a big thing. Any kind of technology is is showcased there. And Vicky's father, the one that lived in, in 
that used to stay in Central America. He used to buy these shirts. We used to call them Chichi Fabs in this little town in Costa Rica called Chichi Castanangan. I remember spending a day or two out in the infield drinking beers and selling shirts. It was a long time ago. But that's where she was standing. She asked me, she said, okay, Kantner, you, you say you're from there. Is there anywhere around that I can go fishing? I said there was, but it turned out she didn't have enough time to get to the places I had suggested. And funny you would mention, I'm just working on a story um, fishing one of these creeks. Anyway, but she's a phenom. I, 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 she's done more, and she still has, you know, like six months to go or three four months to go until she's age 30 than just about anybody. I mean, she is a real... Uh, so she uh, she I, guides out of the, the Tampa Bay area? Is that yes, she does. Waters? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, what's interesting, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, moratorium on snook and redfish and so forth. I just came back from Belize a few days ago, and... And my guy down there was talking that, uh, you know, the protected fish down there are tarpon, uh, bonefish, and permit. But he's, I guess, the country yeah. is thinking about adding uh, snook to that list as well because they're being overfished down there. And snook is the really good eating fish. Uh, so, yeah, no, no, um, I used to eat them. I used to catch them here. It's now I'm a little weary. I live on a, a river here, and um, they come swimming up right behind the tennis courts here. Uh, but not like they used to. We really have a pollution problem here that no one seems willing to address. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, snook, big stuff. We fish for them in the surf with fly rods here, and I'm sure she does it there. And yep. uh, whether you're going to eat them or not, they're sure fun to catch on the fly. And I have seen, oh, yeah. you know, you can't trust some of these videos and some of these still shots. These things might have been shot in 1972, but I see the stuff on Facebook with a, you know, where, you know, the school is moving in front of the guy. And they're, uh, they're I'm not going to say they're easy on fly tackle, but uh, uh, they're really enjoyable in the surf, and they really take off. It's, yeah, yeah. I'm sure yeah. she's done it all. And she's yeah, also yeah. fished. Uh, there's one place I think that she, I'm trying to remember exactly. Uh, I believe that she goes up into that Smoky Mountain National Park and, and has done some cold water fishing. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, well, let's uh, move to our last lady of fly fishing, Joan Salvato Wolf. Um, uh, I, I'm going to introduce this because uh, Phil McCartney, one of our longtime listeners, wrote this in as a question but also a comment, and I think it's a good introduction. Uh, is Joan Wolf still doing casting programs? I saw her do casting demonstrations quite some time ago, and despite having learned a great deal from her books, I was not prepared for the fact that Joan was far from physically imposing. She actually seemed fragile until she cast. At that point, I saw the definition of elegance and grace as her line defied gravity on its way to a distant target. I'm sure that my jaw dropped to the floor. So with that said, <laughs> let's talk about Joan Wolf. Okay, uh, I, I know her, I, and I have for many, many years. So does my wife, I believe. Tom Perro has known her since, you know, the dawn of time. Uh, he's featured her extensively when he had Fish and Fly magazine. I came down here. I have photos. But don't ask me how they didn't get in the book, but I have photos of her fly casting in a parking lot down here, believe it or not, at the IGFA building at, at a Federation of Fly Fishers conclave. And 
I saw something recently, and she's in her 90s now, and yeah, she can still do it. And I mean, that's the whole thing. Anybody ought to know. I mean, you know, it's all about putting an accelerating loop in the line. This isn't about, you know, how hard you push or how hard, you know, you got that quick speed up and snap or whatever. But, I mean, if you muscle that thing and throw it around like what did Lefty used to say, like you're tearing your underwear, you got to have an orthopedic surgeon on retainer to give you cortisone shots. And Joan learned this stuff. It's very interesting, the story. I mean, I could quote it. I mean, she was a, a kid, you know, back there, I don't know, seven brothers or something like that. And back in those days, parents sent their sons to college, not their daughters. And, you know, the guidance counselor, I remember what he said to her. He said, so what are you good at? And she said, fishing and dancing. She was a good dancer. She had uh, she had solid legs under her. And she had this lady in town. I remember the woman's name was Edith Egg, kind of an unusual name. And Edith Egg finally employed her. The two of them were dance instructors. Joan used to drive. Uh, she was right outside. What's the city? in New Jersey, wait a minute, I'm trying to think, my friend is from there, uh, a little city outside, a little town outside that city, but she used to take the train up to New York City and work for like peanuts as a secretary or steno or something, some insurance agency. And I mean, you know, it didn't pay the candy bar you got to eat to go there. And this Let's set the time frame here. We're talking pre-World War II you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just, yeah, and the deal was also with Wolf, her dad, Jimmy Salvato, this was back in the days, uh, we call it skish casting, it's uh, skill in casting something or other, and he had a, I think he, he owned a, uh, he had a local hardware store. I, I know he had a local TV or radio program. And they used to go around, and some of the skish casting stuff was, you had a casting rod. This was back in the days where these little pistol grip casting rods and a casting plug, a rubber thing, and, you know, you had to land it in a hula hoop or do this or that. And this was, when you say, the, before the Second World War, uh, I recall it being right afterwards when there were a lot of people that didn't have a lot to do. And there was this, at that time, a great interest developed in casting because people didn't have the wherewithal, you know, to get out and to go do this stuff. I might be under Great Depression, but, I mean, Joan is 90 now, and, you know, you can kind of figure backwards when she was 21 years old or whatever. But I she, say here, uh, uh, May, May 1944, she went to work for the advertising firm in Manhattan. So yeah, okay, well, after it was, World War II. Well, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just right, right at the end of it there. But yeah. um, and she started doing well. And the whole thing is, she wanted to get into the fishing business. You saw the thing where she was out in the boat in Patterson, New Jersey. That's where it was. And she's rowing, or the mom's rowing the boat, and she's there, and Daddy's casting the bug around and something, this great big old bass grabs the popping bug out from the lilies and he strips it up to the boat and he's pulling around and the bug flops out and he goes, what, what a monster. And uh, anyway, uh, like all of us, that was the moment that she got hooked. Or, yeah. or there was a moment she got hooked and that was it. And then as she got more interested in the science, uh, her dad introduced her to moving water, 
and she makes some rather cogent observations. She tells you, uh, for example, the ideal speed for trout to hold and this and that. And she went up, and the best I can tell where they fished was in northeastern New Jersey. And I'm, I'm from eastern Pennsylvania, and I, there's an area I know sort of between the you know, if you go north, some hills or the Berkshires or something up there. Right. And there were right. streams. And anyway, uh, uh, she fell in love with that. And then at one point, finally, was the grand introduction to Atlantic salmon. But somewhere between then, back in the uh, 50s and the 60s, and if it was in the 60s, I, I remember I used to work in the summertime, you know, when I was in college, a place called Boyd's Tackle. And the guy who was from Teaneck, New Jersey, his name was D. Simone. He was the big distributor uh, or sales manager for Garcia, and he used to come into our tackle store with those Garcia Conlon rods. And at the time, I mean, it was kind of what was shaken, but uh, um, this is back when religion was being born and Jim Green with, with Fenwick and Grizzly Fenwick it was back then. And, these West Coast guys were really experimenting with polymer science and making some really, really solid, much uh, fishing rods were taking a quantum leap. And, you know, the, the split cane that was so uh, popular from back in the, you know, after they cut off a green heart all the way through the, I guess, early 1950s uh, was losing popularity. And then you went to fiberglass and then to whatever. But these are the years... And Joan Wolf, you know, outlived all of it. You, you, if you read the chapter, and I'm not going to try to restroke her history there. I mean, she's had a very, how should I say, an exciting, multi-dimensional life. I mean, she's very self-deprecatory, but she's she's really a lady. And she says one place, she said, you know, I've done things she's not. I'm not proud of. I mean, I've been married more than once, so what? You know, what could I say? But anyway, uh, I have met. Yeah, I think some uh, of the uh, some of the highlights that uh, you you noted here were 1951 National Fisherman's Distance event. Uh, she won uh, casting against all male competition. 1960s. Oh, that's the one where the, 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 the kid has to go to the bathroom, has to go potty, and yeah. Mama gets somebody to take the kid, and she goes out, and you know, with her mind elsewhere or whatever. He just goes ahead and slings that thing, and man, yeah, 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 knocks him. Yeah, down. well, she really uh, kind of busted the, the glass ceiling, and uh, uh, you know, contributed a lot in the way of, of, of um, teaching people. Nobody would take her serious. Yeah. The problem then, and I went round and round with all these ladies, and sooner or later the question had to come out: Did anybody have you ever been harassed, or has anybody ever? Uh, have you ever been the subject of any kind of sexual discrimination? And some of these ladies, you know, insisted that they never had been, you know, a tough shell. No, no, nobody did that to me. And maybe they were telling the truth. I trust they were. But, boy, I'll tell you what, she had to really, uh, she had to toughen her hide. I mean, traveling alone like she was and everything and down here and, you know, a woman away from home. I think I remember her even coming in Boyd's Tackle at one time. This is before I ever knew her formally. And I interviewed her on several occasions on the phone in person. She knew my wife's father, who used to be 
he worked for Garcia in the silicote. Uh, he was the president of silicote, made the fly line dressing. So it was all this everybody knew everybody kind of thing. But yeah, she really she fought for every inch she got. And then you know that fly casting school and the stuff she learned. And she credits that guy down at the end of the street who owned the hardware store. I can't remember his name, but for almost everything that she learned, and he taught her, is something that's very interesting. I mean, we all have different kind of physical levers. Your forearm might proportionally be slightly longer than mine or whatever, and so on and so forth. But she taught, you know, using that whole arm for the casting and getting it back behind you, excuse me, not muscling it. And she has been able or was able to, I think they still have, I think her, her sons or one of her sons runs that wolf fly fishing school up in, I want to say, Lou Beach or wherever up in upstate New York or whatever. Pero, who of course, he'll kill me if he's listened to this and I get the wrong name. But um, And she also, the deal with, as she met Lee, uh, she was on assignment uh, for Sports of Field magazine. And this is when it wasn't easy for a woman to get work in fishing. And she'd take whatever they'd give her, and she just fell for him. And uh, she was, they were doing something up at Nova Scotia or Newfoundland or whatever. Each one of them caught a giant tune, and Lee caught this world record on 50-pound line. And uh, He didn't fake it. I didn't know the guy, but I can tell you, I've seen pictures of him. He caught a giant marlin, free-cast into it off the Salinas, Ecuador. You know, it was like six hours on a click-drag fly reel, this kind of stuff. He he did it the old-fashioned way. I mean, he was running them okay, down and backing with, them down. Let's stick, with, uh, let's stick with Joan because yeah. we're out of time, and i got to wrap this okay. up. Okay, all right. Well, now, yeah, so. she, let me, she, um, she made it the hard way, and she made it big. Yeah, and as you referred to her as the first lady of fly fishing, I think if you ask anybody today that knows a, a tad bit about fly fishing and you mention her name, they're going to know who she is. So I think, uh, don't you think she's probably made the biggest impact on fly fishing within her lifetime than, than anyone? I would, I would, as far I would as have women? to agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah absolutely. So too. Yeah. So after, after interviewing all these women, uh, what takeaways did you have? Uh, from this whole adventure well, that went on to you. I have definitely newfound respect for their contributions. Uh, also the fact that it's possible to be extremely athletic and at the same time feminine. It's like who would have thunk, you know, Mia Hamm or Muhammad Ali's daughter a couple of years ago, and these are feminine women, and, boy, they're real good at what they do. Uh, I think, I think, I'm a little staggered when I look back on it, and I wondered why something that was such should have been such a unisex endeavor was so much, you know, a man's experience. And if there's a couple of things, and I close on this unless you want more, but the things that have really enhanced women in fishing, not just fly fishing, are, first of all, there's kind of been a paradigm shift where it's okay. You can be a lady and go fishing. And some of these girls that I interviewed, I won't mention their names, were literally scared to get in the stream and out in the middle of the woods or something like that because you know, they dress like men and stuff because, you know, some guys see it. 
they go slow. They, they maybe didn't bother you, but they go slit your tires, and you were 20 miles from town. Um, the other thing is, despite the fact that we're a nation of out of shape people, there is a subset of women and men who are much more physically active and rely on better diets and are who are physically stronger. Uh, third, I would credit massive improvements in tackle equipment. I mean, a fly rod that used to weigh, you know, at eight and a half feet, you know, nine ounces or whatever, now weighs two and a half. And something else that one or two of these women kind of got a little snotty about, but um, I think something that's very important, it is to men, and I don't see why it wouldn't be to women, is that for the first time, these manufacturers are really starting to address fashion. And, you know, we don't think about this, but, you know, I think we're past the point of making pink fly reels for girls and stuff. And now it's where they wear form-fit waders, you know, which, of course, helps them from getting carried away in the current. Uh, and also, you know, you see them with these yoga pants and stuff like that, and they're fashionable. So these girls get a chance to look good. I don't know about you. When I go fishing, I don't mind looking good. I'm, I'm not doing it for the fish. I try to wear something that doesn't scare the fish. But, I mean, if I'm going to go somewhere, you know, and do casting or something like that at some show, I want to look sharp. I mean, I'm going to have a sure, jacket on not? if I have to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so not? I think these contributed, yep. Well, well that's good. It. So um, that's yeah, yeah. Let's wrap this thing up. Uh, I've got a few drawings here to do. Um, we're going to give away, um, and, and if you're one of the winners here, I'll contact you after the show uh, to tell you how you can uh, collect your prize. Uh, but these winners for the drawings, they were randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for the show uh, tonight, it's too late now. But uh, you can for our next show. So be sure you do that. So you might win one of these great prizes we have to offer. So first one we're giving away here tonight is a uh, one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support um, and uh, doing great uh, in the way of conservation efforts. So check them out. So our winner for that is Al Laurent, Al Laurent in Oklahoma. Al Laurent. So uh, Al, congratulations on, on winning that. And um, next up is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Amato Books is a publisher of books and periodicals having to do with fly fishing, and they have many, many to choose from, so check out what they have to offer at amatobooks.com. Our winner for that is Trevor Stowe, Trevor Stowe in Alabama. So congratulations, Trevor. And... Um, now we'll give away a uh, we're going to give away a $25 gift certificate to Front Range Anglers in Boulder, Colorado, and um, I'm going to make this easy because we're over time here and we want to get this done quickly. So um, the question is, um, give me the full name of uh, the first lady of fly fishing full name of the First Lady of Fly Fishing. And we'll see if we get a winner here, Steve. Um, this might be a little tougher than I was intending, but uh, we'll see what we get here and see if we can get a winner. This takes a little bit because actually the audio is delayed, so they don't 
actually hear it for a minute or so. Yeah. So we're waiting to find somebody here and uh, get an answer. And okay. It looks like we've got... Um, Joe DePinto, Joe DePinto, and the, oh, uh, uh, Joe DePinto, Joan Savato-Wolf, and you got that right, Joe, so uh, congratulations and uh, for paying attention and taking notes, and uh, appreciate all you guys and gals for listening in and uh, joining us tonight. Um, Steve, I really appreciate you being with us tonight, and uh, it was a pleasure having you. He has a wealth of knowledge way beyond uh, the ladies of fly fishing uh, that you shared with us tonight. So I truly appreciate It's a pleasure that. being there, Roger. I really, I, I'm a talker, I know, but I love talking about this stuff. I can see how you enjoy it, too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, time flew by, right? Earlier you said 90 minutes. Yeah, man, I, I was having a good fly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> flew by, flew by. Well, our next broadcast will be on June 19th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, and I'll be interviewing Matt Sapinski. And our topic for the show will be the brown trout Atlantic salmon nexus. Uh, veteran author, guide, adventurist, and chef Matthew Sapinski shares with us um, the brown trout Atlantic salmon lineage and the two species' remarkable adaptability and resilience. He highlights fly fishing tactics, fly patterns, artistic appreciation, and culinary and foraging opportunities. Join us to learn about two of the world's most intriguing, beautiful, and noble fish. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, uh, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, uh, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Whoops.